that we can read it together and that you've made yourself known. You've not left us to wonder uh, who you are or what you are like, but you've revealed yourself in your word. And so thank you uh, for this time now to study it, to hear it, and to apply it to our lives. We need your help, Father. We pray that you, by your spirit, would teach us and open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Lord, we look to you now and give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, hey, go ahead and join me in John chapter 5, verse 16 is where we're going to be starting. Just want to once again welcome you. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching us online, we see you. We love you. We want to welcome you also. And hey, so many good things coming up, you guys. VBS, Zoe, our daughter, it's going to be her first time at VBS. I know, she's four, we, uh, we can't wait, she can't wait, it's going to be awesome. So thank you to all of you who are helping run it, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series this morning called Come and See, just an invitation to look at Jesus closely and clearly week after week as we walk through the Gospel of John, right? Little by little, uh, for some time now, we've been in the Gospel of John, and we just heard the first few verses of our section for the morning and read out loud, and you saw in, in the text, right, in the reading, that there's an issue, there's an objection, there's a, a question being thrown at Jesus by the religious leaders, and the question is this, who do you think you are? Right? Like, who do you think you are? You notice in the text, they say in verse 18, basically, hey, he's breaking the Sabbath by healing people. And then, uh, not only that, but they say that he's making himself equal with God. Because when they got mad at him about doing these things on the Sabbath, his response, right, he said to them, what, in verse 17, my father is working, and so I'm going to be working too, essentially, You see, the Jews believe that God the Father, though he created the world in six days and then rested on the Sabbath, that he uh, continued working. And even on their Sabbath, he continued to uphold the universe, right? He never stops doing that or everything would fall apart. And so God continues to work in that sense, but he doesn't break the Sabbath. And so Jesus is essentially saying, hey, the same sort of thing applies to me. I'm not breaking the Sabbath. I'm just working the way that my father is working. And so he's essentially putting himself in a separate category from you and I. Saying, hey, the same rules that apply about the Sabbath don't necessarily apply to me in the same way that they apply to you. Now, think about this. Sometimes today uh, people will claim, or maybe you personally have thought this, that, well, like, did Jesus really claim to be God? You know, or like, like, is that something that his followers just made up later? You know, did he really think of himself as God or claim to have that sort of authority? And, and if so, right, if he was just a human teacher, then really, you know, you can take his word or leave it. He's just one spiritual guru among many, right? Take it or leave it. But what we see in this passage and in, in uh, countless other places in Scripture, we see Jesus claims to be much more than just a human teacher. He claims the authority to do things that only God can do, which prompts the question, who do you think you are, Jesus? That's what the religious leaders are saying. Who in the world does this Jesus think that he is? 
And so he's going to unpack his identity for us, and he's going to unpack for us his work, the things that he's been called to do. And one commentator about this section of Scripture wrote this. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine condition and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in this discourse. It seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. So some deep waters are ahead here. But let's again remember the context. Remember what's going on in the passage. Uh, The Jewish leaders, their feathers are ruffled. Okay, they're frustrated. It even says they're seeking to kill Jesus because he's breaking the Sabbath. And not only that, he's making himself equal with God. And here's his response. Okay, look at verse 19. It says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So notice in Jesus' response, he's basically explaining his relationship with the father. And he shows the perfect unity that he has with his father. Okay, and it's using the language of an apprentice or a son in the ancient world who would learn the family business, essentially, from their father. Right? In the ancient world, a son would watch their father work. You probably would learn to do the same work. Right? If, you were a fisherman, or if your dad was a fisherman in the ancient world, you probably were going to be a fisherman. Okay, if your dad was a carpenter, you probably were going to be a carpenter. It doesn't exactly work the same way today. If it did, I would be working in retail. Okay, my dad was in business. He's retired now, but he was like a district manager for Borders and for Ross and Mervyn's. Anybody remember Mervyn's? Shout out, Pops. Good work at Mervyn's. Okay, so I would be in there, but, um, you know, it doesn't quite work the same way today, so here I am. And for many of you, I'm sure you don't do exactly what your parents did. But back in the day, that's essentially how it would work. And so he's saying, hey, I can only do what I see my father doing. Verse 19 says, whatever the father does, the son does also. In verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. One of the big points here we see in verse 19 is Jesus saying simply the son can do nothing by himself. And so through this apprentice language, Through this idea, he's trying to communicate, hey, I'm not setting myself up as like some separate God, some separate other authority independent from the Father, uh, a second God, if you will. I'm not acting on my own prerogative. And actually, some Jewish rabbis, largely in the second century, would look at Christians and they'd say, you guys believe in two gods. You have your God of the Old Testament, you have your God the Father, and now over here you worship this Jesus. And so do you guys believe in one God or two gods? It looks like you believe in in two gods. And Jesus here is trying to communicate that's not uh, how Scripture reveals who God is. Not two gods, but one. So he's saying his work, you see, is perfectly in line with the Father, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not here to rival the Father. I'm here to reveal the Father. I'm here to make the Father known. 
I'm here to show what the heart of God is like. I'm only doing what my Father does, showing perfectly what the Father is like. Which makes sense, right? When, when later we remember that Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he's so perfectly unified and in line with who the Father is, that his work essentially is the work of the Father. Now, Jesus shows us something important about uh, that we need to see today because often we will think that the work of Jesus is independent from the work of the Father or we'll think that Jesus and the Father are opposed or we'll read the Old Testament and say, well, God the Father is one way, but Jesus is gracious and he shows us another way. But Jesus says that's not how it works. Jesus is revealing the heart of the Father. And so what we see in Jesus, that's showing us what the Father is like too. And it's here that we get the veil pulled back a little bit and we get a glimpse of the doctrine of the Trinity. We get to look kind of into the deep things of God and see uh, the mystery of the Trinity, what the church has affirmed throughout the centuries, right? what Christians have affirmed for thousands of years, that we worship one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So within the Godhead, we have both unity and diversity, right? Unity in that we worship only one God, and that each person of the Trinity has the same essence and nature, unified in purpose, equal in glory and honor, undivided in will, and yet diversity in that the three are God. Right? There's distinction here. We've seen this throughout John already, that uh, the Son is not the Father. The Son's in relationship with the Father, but the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. In fact, we see that the Father and Son even play uh, different roles in salvation. If you could see uh, D.A. Carson, uh, scholar and theologian, put it this way. Even in this text, we see the Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants, and the Son responds, obeys, performs his Father's will, receives authority. We see that the Son is perfectly submissive to his Father. And so they are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And we can take that further. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and so on. They are distinct. So three in one, unity in diversity. And within the Trinity, then, we see, think about this, within God himself, we see relationship, right? Father in relationship with his Son and Spirit. We see love. Verse 20 says the Father loves the Son. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so within the Godhead, there is love, giving love, receiving love. There is relationship. And so how amazing, just think about it this way, that, that, that we, when we are saved, when we are united to Christ, we then are somehow uh, invited into this love relationship of God. Right? In Christ, we are uh, children of God, chapter 1 tells us from John. We can receive the love of the Father 
In fact, John 17, if you fast forward a bit in the Gospel of John to John 17, Jesus is praying famously for, for unity for his followers. And he says this. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Hear that? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And so Jesus is saying that, that we, believers, through faith, are united to Christ. And we somehow are invited into this love relationship of the Trinity. We're somehow caught up, invited into the very life of God. It's amazing. It's incredible. And, and as we continue to, to unpack the relationship between the Father and Son, there's one other piece I want you to see if you skip to verse 22. It says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. We'll come back to that. And then verse 23, That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, do the does not honor the Father who sent him. And so Jesus, again, is pointing to the perfect unity that he has with his Father, saying, I do nothing of my own accord. I only do what the Father does or what I see the Father doing. And they're so unified that how you respond to one reveals how you respond to the other. You see, how you respond to one reveals how you respond to the other. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. They're, they're a package deal. And if you think about, again, the family unit in the ancient world, often how you treated one member of the family was indicative of how you treated or representative of how you treated the rest of the family. And in fact, that very much uh, applies often today, right? If you're a parent and someone is, is messing with one of your kids, being a bully to one of your kids, and then they come and try and get all chummy and buddy-buddy with you, you're probably going to be like, mm, I'm not having that because you're being a bully to my kid. I'm not for that, right? And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, hey, if you have a problem with me, if you do not honor me, then that means that you have a problem with the Father who sent me. Now, first of all, think about how astounding that claim is. We do that Jesus could show up and say, hey, if you honor me, you honor God. And if you don't honor me, you do not honor God. I mean, which of us could say that, right? Could we enter a room and say, look, if you do not honor me, you do not honor God himself. None of us would say that. But Jesus shows up, and that's exactly what he says. Verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So how you respond to the Son reveals how you respond to the Father. Now, that's noteworthy today because we all know this. As we look out at our world, there's, there's a lot of spiritual talk, right? A lot of people who want to talk about being maybe spiritual people, a lot of talk about God in general, but it's not always connected to Jesus, right? It's much more like socially acceptable to talk about God in, in vague, general terms. I'm a spiritual person, or I believe in God. Like if you were to say that out in public, no big deal, right? I'm a spiritual person, cool. I believe in God, cool. But if you're like, I'm a follower of Jesus, people are like, watch it, weirdo. Like pump the brakes there, okay? Right, when we mention the name of Jesus, it can often be 
divisive. It can often, it's not as welcomed. And so people will talk about, again, God or having a spiritual connection in some way, but then they'll say, well, Jesus, God, I don't know, if that's your thing, okay, you know, take it or leave it. There's other ways to be connected to God, or that's kind of what they say. And if, if that's you, if, if you're coming from that place, or you know someone there, like, I, I get, I understand kind of that mentality and why a lot of people think that today. But what I, what I would invite you to see uh, in, in the text is that, that Jesus says otherwise. Right on the word, words of Jesus, he simply says, hey, we are a package deal. So if you deny me, you're denying God. He says, if you deny me, if you don't honor me, then, then whatever, you know, spiritual practice you're into, you know, call it what you want, but he would say, you are not connected to my Father. 1 John 2 echoes the same truth. 1 John 2, 23 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And so biblically speaking, friends, it all comes down to what will we do with Jesus? That's the dividing line. And that's the dividing line as we think about uh, worldviews in general, but world religions, as we think about uh, religions like Mormonism or like the Jehovah's Witnesses or like Judaism, right? There, there's some overlap there. As we look at these traditions, we'd say, okay, there's some points of agreement. There's some similar ideas, convictions, but there are radically different ways of looking at who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And that's the dividing line. That's what makes all the difference, friends. It all comes back to what will we do with Jesus? So he's unpacking for us his relationship with the Father, we see this, and now the text is going to shift gears a little bit, and he's going to start to tell us some of the things he came to do or he can do. Look with me at verse 21. We're going to read a long section, okay? Buckle up. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he's the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So, throughout these verses, you see Jesus explain not only, again, his relationship with the Father, but two distinct tasks or works that the Father has given the Son to do. Did you notice them? There are two of them. First one, the Son gives life. Right? You saw that in verse 21, 24, 25, 26, 
29. He's talking about the son giving life. And second, the son judges. God the Father has given authority to the son to judge. We see this in verse 22, verse 27, verse 29. So we're going to talk about those two in just a moment. But before we talk about them specifically, I just want you to notice with me what stands out about that is that those are things that only God can do. Right? The giver of life and the judge. The Old Testament was clear on this. Who had the creator to raise the dead and give life? It was God. Right? Who is the uncreated creator? It was God. Who is the self-existent one? Right? It says... Uh, It talks about having life in himself, meaning he's not dependent upon anyone else or anything else for life. He has life in himself. He's the self-existent, self-sufficient one, God. Further, who is the judge of all the earth? God. Who's the one who sits on his throne with authority to judge and determine good and evil and justice and and necessary punishment? It's, It's God. Those are the things that God does. And now Jesus comes and is claiming the authority to do those things. And so again, we're confronted with the fact that Jesus is not just some, you know, one spiritual guru among many, take it or leave it. He's claiming to be much more. He's claiming to have the very authority of God himself. He stands above all the rest and claims to be the one who can give life and the one who can judge. Now, let's look at those uh, separately really quickly. Jesus claims first that he can give life. Verse 21 says, the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 24 says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So friends, we see here really the very heart of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, that whoever believes, it says, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So the gospel is about crossing over. It's about going from death to life. It's about being dead in our sin, worthy of judgment, worthy of condemnation, and God in his grace and in his mercy forgiving us and giving us new life, giving us salvation. The Bible uses the language of new birth, new life, right? We have new hearts. We go from slavery to freedom. We were orphans, and now we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. So the Bible talks about just these massive identity shifts, these massive uh, shifts in our transformation and in our status. And, And so notice with me, please, that following Jesus is not about incremental change. It's, it's not about uh, behavior modification primarily. It's not about uh, more and more doing good works to be a better person and, and get right with God and earning the favor of God. As, as if, you know, the Christian life was some sort of strange multi-tiered rewards program, okay? We've talked about this. Starbucks back in the day had a multi-tiered rewards program. Now, if you're a member, you're just like a gold member. You're just a rewards member. But back then, do you remember, do you remember they had the, uh, the green 
like membership, okay? So you could be just like an average person on the street and they don't care about you. Or you could be like a, a green rewards member and had like some perks, but then if you like bought enough coffee and were addicted and a slave enough to coffee, you could become a gold member, okay? Um, remember that? So there was this tier system, and sometimes we think about the Christian life in the same way, right? Like we just got to keep earning, keep doing more. Eventually we'll get a higher status. We'll reach, you know, keep reaching those benchmarks, keep moving up, keep doing good works, keep coming to church, whatever. We move our way up. But, but Jesus says that's not how the gospel works. He says, no, it's about crossing over. It's about going from death to life. It's about immediately receiving eternal life, receiving the blessings of salvation, receiving this new identity, this fundamental status change that isn't necessarily incremental. Yes, we grow in our sanctification, we grow in our holiness, we learn to obey, but at the foundation of what it means to be a Christian is not, hey, I'm going to like work at it and hope to be better. It's that you have been transformed. You have received salvation. You were dead, now you're alive. Now, the question then becomes, how do we receive this? How do we receive this new life? The text tells us, verse 24, what does he say? Whoever hears my word and believes. How do you experience salvation? How do you receive eternal life? By hearing and believing, by looking to Jesus. By looking to him in faith, by trusting in him as Lord and Savior. By trusting in his his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, and we will be saved. And so as we often talk about, the how in all this is so crucial. The how of salvation. It's fundamentally different than any other religion, any other worldview. Pastor and author Tim Keller summarized it well in a recent sermon where he mentions that basically every other religion, every other worldview is like building a bridge to get to the other side of the chasm. And you have to build the bridge. You've got to go plank after plank. You lay down the plank. You hope to get to the other side through your good deeds, through your spiritual practices. Just plank after plank. You have to make it. Whether it's, you know, self-actualization on the other side or enlightenment or, or you know, heaven or whatever, being a good person, whatever it is you're trying to get to, you are the one who has to, you know, do the work, build the bridge, and get across. Here's some, you know, and religions can offer, hey, here's some good advice on how to build a better bridge or how to build your bridge faster. But it's ultimately up to you to get the job done. But following Jesus is fundamentally different. Because in the gospel of Jesus, we do not hear, hey, here's good advice on how to build a bridge. We hear instead just the proclamation, hey, the bridge has already been built for you. You don't have to build the bridge because Jesus has already made the way for you. Here's the good news. Simply receive it. He takes you across. You don't earn your way. You don't make it on your own. You can't build the bridge. Simply believe and receive the work of Christ for you. This is good news. And not only does this text tell us what salvation is like, it's about crossing over, and how we cross over through hearing and believing, we hear in this text when we cross over. See that? Verse 24, what does it say? It says, whoever hears and believes has crossed over. Verse 25, the time is coming, and the time has now come when the dead will something the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So what's the point? This is talking about something that 
has already happened for those who believe. That eternal life, salvation, is something that we can experience now. Right? It's not just something that, hey, when we die, we, you know, get to experience this. But this new life in Christ is available to us now. Now, in the Jewish mind, like eternal life and resurrection at Judgment Day was, was completely a future thing. Something God will do later. And certainly this text affirms that, hey, the fullness of this salvation, the fullness of life, eternal life into eternity, that, yes, has its future dimension. It is to come. But also Jesus is saying, hey, essentially, it starts now. This is what theologians will call the already, but the not yet. Right? This new life in Christ, it already begins for the believer, and yet it's not yet experienced in its fullness. It is to come already and not yet. Another term you might hear is inaugurated eschatology. Big word, throw that out at a dinner party sometime. Sounds smart, it'd be great. Uh, but the life of this new world to come, uh, the talk of the last things in the end times, this eternal life is inaugurated. The word has begun, has kicked off in, in some meaningful way through the work and ministry of Christ. So this new life, in part, is available to us now. So following Jesus doesn't just affect our eternity and our, our uh, future, but it affects our present, right? how we live now. We don't just believe and then, hey, sit in church for, you know, 80 years, Lord willing, 90 years until you die, and then, uh, then you'll experience the good news. Jesus says it starts now. Now, Pastor John Ortberg uh, wrote a book about the spiritual life called The Life You've Always Wanted. And I, I think that's a helpful title and a helpful idea to remind us that, that in Christ, through following Jesus, we can experience this, this life that we long for, life as it, is, as it was intended to be. Not that all our circumstances change or are made perfect instantly, but uh, within our hearts, Jesus does something to give us peace and rest and joy and life to the full that we cannot experience anywhere else. Right, 2 Corinthians 5 says that in Christ we are a new creation. So we can have hope that, that Jesus is doing something new in each of us even now. So think about some applications of this. That when we are, as Christians, when we're, we're bitter or when we're angry or someone has wronged us and we want to hold on to resentment, we want to hold on to uh, unforgiveness, in Christ we have the power and freedom to forgive because we have been so forgiven. So we can let go of that bitterness and, and walk in this newness of life. Or if, if we're the kind of people who always need control, I need to control the situation, I need to control the outcome, I need to control how I'm perceived, if I'm burdened by worry, and I'm tempted to maybe manipulate people or situations so that my preferred outcomes happen. If that's us, then in Christ and in the gospel, we can learn to rest, to let go of control, to not worry because we have a good father who loves us and knows what we need. And he's in control, not us. If we are discouraged, if we are in despair, Jesus can give us hope that one day, either in this life or the next, things will 
change. He will bring redemption. Friends, if we have an immoral past, if we are addicted to pornography, if we are a slave to lust or immorality of various kinds, Jesus can now give us freedom. He can give us purity. He can cleanse us. He can wash us. Friends, if we're insecure and you feel inadequate, or you feel unlovable, or you fear rejection, or you're a a people pleaser, Jesus can give you freedom. And the security that comes, the confidence that comes from knowing you are loved by the Father, you are a child of God, your identity is rooted in Christ, not in anything you do, or your performance, or people's opinion of you, can be freedom and rest. Friends, if you're captive to yourself, to constantly needing to defend yourself or prove yourself or seek praise, Jesus can give you freedom. You have the love and affirmation that you so deeply need in Christ so you can freely love others and love God. So do you see how the gospel can change how we live now? Friends, I encourage you, if There are things in your life, sins that you are convicted of, burdens, things you're trapped in, hidden sins. I pray that you would bring them to the light, that you'd bring them to the Lord. Lay down the fear, lay down the sin, lay down that idol, that burden, whatever it might be. Name it. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Experience uh, the freedom that he brings. Ask for his power. Ask for his spirit to help you walk in this newness of life that he came to give us. So we see that Jesus gives life, both now and forever, right? There's a future component here. You see verse 27, talks about Jesus has been given authority to judge as the Son of Man. And then verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Friends, we all want to know how the story ends, right? We're talking with our middle schoolers in our youth group this past week about stories that they love, movies they love, books they love, and we talked about the ending. We talked about what they loved about the ending to their favorite story, heard a lot of different things. I heard about the, uh, the movie Avengers Endgame. I haven't seen it. But apparently a lot of people die in it. It's kind of like controversial. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. Jordan, you can tell me after the service. But, you know, we we talked about interesting endings. We're shaped by stories, by narratives. And Jesus here is telling us how the story ends. He's telling us how our story, the story of humanity, will end. He's saying, hey, a day is coming when the dead will be raised, all will be raised, and Jesus will judge. As the Son of Man, this Old Testament reference, Daniel chapter 7, this coming king, the Son of Man who would rule with power and dominion and the very authority of God, Jesus is saying, hey, that's me. And he says what? Some will rise to life and others will rise and face condemnation. Some will rise and enter life and eternity with God and his good, redeemed new heavens and new earth. Others will rise and face condemnation, it says. And Jesus himself will be the judge. He will be the one to judge the nations, to determine those who receive life and those who face 
condemnation. And the text here says, what's the determining factor? Those who have done good versus those who have done evil. That kind of sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like works salvation. So we have to understand this in context. What has Jesus just said? He's talked about hearing and believing. That's how you enter life. And so these good works he's talking about are not somehow uh, disconnected from faith, are not somehow the merit themselves, right? It's by faith. We've seen already throughout the Gospel of John that if we do have faith and believe, we will walk in the light. We will do good. Doing the work of God is to believe. Desire evil, doing evil, is the evidence of our unbelief. The evidence of our desire to walk in darkness and do our own thing. And so we're presented this morning with this incredible Jesus. The only Son of the Father, God Himself, the giver of life, the Savior, the Judge. And with that, we're simply invited to come to Him and believe. One of the ways that we respond as believers is by taking communion. And so this morning, we have a chance as a church family to take communion together, where we take the elements representing Jesus' body and his blood, and we remember his sacrifice for our salvation. We remember what he's done. Uh, We celebrate this this new life we have in him. We practice an open table here at FBC, which means that uh, if you're you're visiting, if you're from a different church, from out of town, uh, we invite you to participate with us if you have put your faith in Jesus. So friends, we have the elements here. If you're at home watching, again, you can go grab uh, elements to use in your own home. Friends, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and then we'll, uh, we'll take the elements together and remember the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we, we thank you for just the truths here. We thank you for who you are, that you truly stand alone. You are the Savior, you are the Redeemer, you are God himself, and we worship you. Thank you that you are the giver of life, that you are the judge, we're humbled before you. And Lord, we just want to take a moment now to to pray to you, Lord. Lord, if, if we have sins to confess, Lord, we bring those now in the quietness of our heart. If there's worship and praise to give, we want to give that to you now, Lord. So we just want to take a moment before taking these elements to remember you. betrayed. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way that after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this 